32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. And I'm Andrea. And this is United Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county is our hometown, Dublin. And this week's question, is the pace of change in Dublin destroying the city's character? Ooh, controversial. Dramatic. Hotels flying up, endless restaurants opening. Dublin does seem like it's buzzing, but every time I'm away and I come back, it also feels like there's a chunk of the city missing. Is the tourist-focused hospitality industry in the capital of floundering? With clubs closing, housing crisis in full swing, local businesses going to the wall, shortage of skilled staff, and only so many customers to go around, what does this rampant gentrification spell for the short and long term? This week, we're looking at some of the main trends shaping a rapidly changing Dublin, and we go underneath the hood of the Dublin hospitality industry as it happens to see if things really are what they seem and whether the city's economic success is actually a lot of smoke and mirrors. So to discuss Dublin we're going to have the chats and we're also going to be joined by the Irish Times restaurant critic and food writer Catherine Cleary. And repping their county this week is rapper Mango. But first the week that was. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to not spend too much time talking about the local and European elections because we're We're sweating to get into the juice this week (laughs) and also as we're recording this there's loads of still things still ongoing like the bonkers count in Dublin in the Euros and all that kind of stuff but given that this week's episode is about Dublin what is pertinent is that there's going to be a new makeup of Dublin City Council it is going to look very different and that is part of the green wave um, that we saw happen across uh, the locals and to a lesser extent the European elections so the previous makeup of the council I suppose that had this big Sinn Féin left block is gone basically Sinn Féin had 16 seats in the council Dublin City Council they're now going to have 8 Fianna Fáil will be the largest council group um, our pal Michal <laughs> our pal Michal at 11 seats the Greens have gone from 3 seats to 10 Fine Gael are at 9 Labour still at 8 but it lost um, Andrew Montague who was you know really well regarded uh, councillor a really good councillor in many ways um, the Sock Dems big victory for them in Dublin they've gone from 1 seat to 5 and <laughs> Mannix Flynn uh, was causing quite the stink at his count he's just like so rude all the time yeah well I mean it's it's uh, it's difficult for lots of people to celebrate their win in the way that he did by being uh, quite bitter about it and by calling um, people for a profit uh, the Taliban <laughs> and ISIS <laughs> so um, I think Mannix needs he's to an, calm he's down. an interesting character and he was throwing a lot of commentary on the subject that we're going to be talking about today about the Shaw and the gentrification and all and just basically giving out about hipsters has he seen his posters <laughs> <laughs> come on Mannix cop on okay let's get into Dublin Andre, where are you from California sun always shines there excellent work I am from the Dean's Grange Massive the no man's land at the south side so we are both Dubliners. Yeah, born and bred. Hit me with some Dublin facts. 550,000 people live in our green city. It's not green, blue. And nearly 2 million in greater Dublin area, right? So it's a third of the Irish population. Wowzer. Yeah. That's insane, isn't it? Um, it's also home to the youngest town in Ireland, Balbriggan, which is where my dentist Becky is. <laughs> Shout out to Becky, we'll be seeing you soon. And it's on the beach, is it? Correct. I know Dublin so well. Um, it's home to the world's only floozy in the jacuzzi. Fair. 
Are we allowed to call her that? Yeah, I think so. Is it like a post Me Too? Uh, yeah, I, I'm like I literally Google loads of things all the time now to make sure I'm allowed to say them. But anyway, <laughs> I said like I literally like can I say this? I'm saying Flazy in the Jacuzzi. It's a Dublin colloquialism. We're gambling it. Seven hundred thousand people are employed in Dublin, which is up thirty-three thousand from last year. And there was a big song and dance from our esteemed government, telling us how nearly everyone was in employment, um, which is interesting when you think about the types of employment they're in, really. Yeah. Tourism is up 14% on last year. But there are 31,000 people on the housing list in Dublin. Um, we are going to do an, another episode on the housing crisis. So we're not going to talk about too much about housing now, though we're going to get into some student accommodation goss later. But those are the Dublin facts. It's a weird kind of city at a weird moment, I think. I mean, so much is changing. Um, you know, I was talking to somebody yesterday who grew up in Los Angeles and spent uh, a lot of time living in New York. And he was saying how when you go to New York, the pace of change is so rapid that basically, you know, you arrive there and like you haven't been there in a few months and this whole new skyscrapers and all that kind of stuff. And he said that he always felt how the pace of change in Dublin was really small. I think that is one of the key things that has changed. In the last three years, the pace of change is huge. And everything's a lot shinier. Correct. And whether that's a good or bad thing, we're going to get into later. But first, our county rep this week is Mango. He is a rapper and the voice of the duo Mango Mathman, passionate about his city and his roots. And he uses his various platforms to give a voice to many issues that affect the city. He also makes great tunes. Um, so here's Mango talking about what he feels about the Dublin vibe. I love how we talk. I love the old ones on Moore Street. I love how the dart is still green and manky looking. I love how even though politicians do everything to stop it, Dublin keeps churning out amazing art, music and activists. I love Take Back the City. I love all the city records. I love how Dubliners take the piss out of everything. I love a few creamy ones and grogans. I love Mesa's murals. I love Brian Kerr. I love demo gigs at Christmas. I love the race to the Workman's Club after half two. I love the horses. I love the Northside Shopping Centre radio jingle. I love Imelda May. I love Youngfellas on bikes doing wheelie shouting yup. I love Ronnie Drew, Paul McGrath, Sarah and Steve, the fuck you attitude that never has us bet. Zay Tunes, Hill 16 on a scorcher of an August day. A dip at Dollyar and a derby at Daily Mount. I love Colin Meany. I love Ballymun. I love Malahide. I love Gay Spar at night. I love the Pillbag Towers, Dr. Quirkies. I love knowing you can be stopped for a chat by a friend on literally any street. I love the dedication to keep the Air Max 90 alive. I love the Wigo Bald sign. I love the smell of James's gay. Larry Gogan. Sue, the greatest bouncer in the world. I love the Take of the Christ by Caravaggio in the gallery. And of course, I love Una Manelli and Andrea Harden. The question this week about Dublin is whether the pace of change in the city is destroying its character. We're talking about whether Dublin has maybe given up or is not prioritising catering for people who live here, who grow up here, whether profit is being privileged over community. I think that's pretty obvious myself. Um, are people who lived in the city or have lived in the city or moved here ages ago benefiting from the current wave of gentrification? And we're going to dive into that in terms of the hospitality industry as a jumping off point in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about some of the interconnected trends in development in the city. 
So if we think about the fabric of town changing so much over the last five years, I kind of see it as these four pillars of that change. One is the restaurant and bar boom, which we're going to get into in a bit. The other one is the massive increase in hotel developments across the city, which has also had a negative impact on the stuff that they're knocking down. You know, everybody was going mental about the Tivoli, District 8 being knocked down. Same goes for Hangar, seeing all these apart hotels pop up and all that kind of crack. Um, and o- like, they're all crap hotels as well. Well, uh, <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> in, in Andrea's fair and honest opinion... But you know what I mean? You'd kind of feel a bit better if it was like a gorge little boutique nice hotel that had a bit of character, personality and was bringing something. It's literally just rack them and stack them and put in a generic room that you can charge loads of money for to for the business tourists. I'm sure the newly opened Hendrick in Smithfield would argue against that, as would the Devlin in Leafy Yeah, I don't include them because I, I do like those. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, another of those pillars is this office space development, which is happening at a bananas pace. And that kind of includes the development of co-working space, which speaks more broadly to insecure work and freelancers and all that kind of stuff. Um, WeWork is obviously the big temple of that stuff. They've opened six locations in Dublin, whether anybody has noticed. Yeah, taking Central Bank. Well, yeah, taking a chunk of Central yeah. Bank, right? And and one of their places um, includes a 14-floor building on Grand Canal, um, which has capacity for 2,600 people. And that makes Dublin one of WeWork's biggest investments outside of the US per capita. And that's obviously driven by the tech sector in Dublin, which we're going to be um, coming to in a, in a later podcast. And then we have the piece that kind of intersects with housing, which is the student accommodation development binge, if you want to call it that. Now, all of these things are kind of interlinked in a way. They paint a picture of a city that's probably... Booming, prosperous. Yeah, but... Successful. And increasingly providing for tourists and people in new and transient employment mm-hmm. sectors, right? And the accommodation provision for international students. Not that there's anything wrong with international students or people coming to Dublin to work. I mean, it's really important to say that kind of stuff. Yeah. We don't want to get into a narrative of like... It's just for us. Yeah, because that, that's total bullshit, obviously. Like, if you're feeling a bit adrift in Dublin these days, though, um, you're not alone and you're probably observing the development of a city that's just increasingly not recognisable. But, you know, progress change, etc. All those kind of things. And nobody's saying that those things should be halted. That's like a really dumb position to take. But I guess... You it's just have to kind of, I suppose for me, is balance the pact of uh, nostalgia and progress and how do you balance that in a way that keeps the city moving and uh, and bubbling as well. So like, and just, it may not be the way we bubble. Yeah, and progress should be considered. Um, you know, nobody does, like, people aren't saying that Dublin shouldn't be an international city that has loads of shit going on and that is wealthy or whatever, but cities also live and die on their identities and characters embedded and in that. Yeah. Um, So let's get into the student accommodation facts, right? Because I know that loads of people like see these planning permissions happening and and buildings flying up and get into a panic of like, oh, another one, another one. Like, you know, the DJ Khaled uh, student accommodation (laughs) remark. That was really lame. What was it? Um, Another one. Doesn't he say that? (laughs) Okay, whatever. I'm old. Doesn't matter. Pop culture. Yeah. Um, But the reason this is happening, okay, is the National Student Accommodation Strategy, uh, which is from May 2017, has a target for purpose-built student accommodation. These are known as internationally as PBSA, purpose-built student accommodation, right? So that's what their vibe is. And that target is nearly 29,000 beds in the city by 2024. And the reason that it's so high is because what have we come from before? Like... 
people scrambling every year to find somewhere to live just so they can go to college. Yeah. So the solution has been instead of building like affordable, high density housing that anyone can live in, that anyone can live in to focus on this purpose built student stuff. So there are now 6,364 student beds in purpose built student accommodation in Dublin city centre between the canals and further uh, 2,700 more are under construction right now and they're meant to be operational by 2020. Um, So that's only a quarter of what the target is. So we have a lot more student accommodation to be seen around the city. Right. And a survey of seven student accommodation buildings um, found that nearly 80% of the residents were international students and on an average they pay 250 bucks a week in rent so grand a month 5% pay more than 300 euro a week so more than 1200 a month for rent so this is like high and would have been seen as very expensive rent uh, up until recently when people are just paying bananas money but it's still obviously very expensive most of the sites anybody who lives in town or around town knows where these are being built are in Dublin 1, Dublin 8 which are the highest number of student accommodation Dublin 7 coming up the rear on that and a lot of these sites did actually have permission for mixed use and housing um, pre-recession and they just weren't developed so now basically with developers seeing that that you know, as I was reading this report in the UK about student accommodation where, where the developers were calling it the golden goose of the UK. Considering there's so much profit in it, the, this is where these sites are being uh, capitalised on. So recent developments in the north inner city, Stony Batter, let's say, I live in Stony Batter, by the way, so vested interest talking about this. Um, Board Planola granted permission for a seven-storey, 257-bed student accommodation complex on Parnell Street, side of the old um, St. Peter's Bakery building there. And as the journal reported on this, uh, this this kind of new planning permission, 200 metres away, there's a 491 bed student accommodation complex in Gardner Street, which is also down the road from a 374 bed student complex in Summer Hill. The reason that these go to Board Planola is that they go through a fast track process, which is part of the strategic development plan, meaning that if you want to build a development, that has more than 100 homes or more than 200 student beds, you don't have to go through the traditional council planning processes. You can just go straight on board Planola. So that's kind of why these things are flying through. In Stony Batter, um, which is obviously beside the m- massive DIT uh, campus in Grange Gorman, there are plans for a five-storey, 142-bed student accommodation building on the main street of Stony Batter. If anybody's familiar with Stony Batter, it's uh, going to be planned to be right beside Tommy O'Gara's pub there in the main street and that's being proposed by a developer in Manchester um, and in that area there are already 3,000 student beds planned um, Stony Bad is obviously like a small area it's probably really the only village left in town I guess um, and that's along with 2,500 beds on the DIT campus itself those developments include student accommodation on North Circular Road Montpellier Hill two on Prussia Street, two on Grange Gorman Road, one on Dorset Street nearby and one on uh, Rathdown Road, not far from those two on Prussia Street. When you get to Dublin 8, anybody who lives in Dublin 8 or walks around Dublin 8, you might find yourself getting lost at the moment because I know I used to live just on Newmarket Square. When I walk down Mill Street now, I'm like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) All these giant buildings. Um, So things have obviously changed a lot kind of at the back part of the tenters and the fumbly and all that. And Oakmount, which is Paddy McKillen of Pressups Development Company, sold a site um, between the Fumbly and Newmarket Square the other week for 10.5 million quid to The Collective. And The Collective owns the largest co-living space in London, um, Old Oak, 
that space in London has uh, 546 rooms but they're about to beat that this summer when they open their 21 storey 705 room development at Canary Wharf in London so that company has bought that site um, it is around where site studios used to be where yeah. um, the, those lovely kind of old warehouses there which um, won't be old warehouses for long now the, I guess the reason it's like why are they why is this rent so expensive right you have these luxury add-ons like gyms screening rooms pool tables video games blah 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 and that kind of allows video games <laughs> take all my money which <laughs> allows the go down to token that allows the private companies that develop and manage those buildings to say like but these are like loads we have loads of these little bells and whistles so they can charge premium rent and the incentive for developers is pretty clear right they get more rooms built in a development and they get more people in to pay high rent. In 2013, um, this is kind of a weird way that we've regressed a little bit because rules came in in 2013 to get rid of bed sits. And that was an attempt to improve living conditions. Um, obviously, anybody who throws an eye on daft these days will see the absolute bits, bits and kips of places um, that are calling themselves studio apartments for rent or rooms filled with bunk beds or like a log cabin at the back of my garden, you know. Um, so it's I hard. I believe I'm laughing at that. Like, I know. It's, it's so bent up. It's like, it's not even funny anymore. Yeah, it's gross. And it's so it's hard to see how those regulations actually improve living conditions. And the most pressing need for accommodation in Dublin, right? High density, social and or affordable flats, apartments, houses, decent amenities, shared facilities. You know, that just hasn't happened you cannot blame private developers for wanting profit. That's their prerogative. They mm-hmm. don't have a responsibility to the fabric of the city or the people who live in it. That yeah, responsibility... Doing their job. Yeah, and that responsibility rests with um, the government, the Department of Housing. And our fave... <laughs> Owen Murphy. <laughs> or he's been a lot of people's fave this week. They've been chanting around him all weekend. <laughs> or week. Um, I guess one thing, though, that student accommodation has done, um, it's filled in vacant sites in Dublin city centre. Um, and a, like I guess a large part of Dublin's housing problem isn't just like we need to build 900,000 houses right now on the outskirts it's actually a dereliction and vacancy issue as well um, but when we look at where this is going and we look at lessons from the UK the average price of student accommodation in the UK has jumped a third in six years and that increase has been driven directly by this high-end student accommodation development So the average rental bill for a student in the UK now takes up 73% of their student loan and that's an increase from 58% in 2011. Um, So when it comes... Why are we so obsessed with them having to be student accommodations? I think it's because they're developer-led and I think that as we've seen in the UK and in other cities, this is a really strong profit-making model for private developers. So if you have a site, um, let's say at the back of Clumbrassel Street, and you have an option of building, you know, a 50 uh, apartments, 50 apartments or 300 student accommodation rooms, I mean, what are you going to build? I mean, obviously when it comes down to capital, you're going to try and squeeze the amount profit most amount of profit you can out of every square meter so the fact that it is private developer led and that there was um, a shortfall in student accommodation identified in the city that's why it's happening but the national union of students in the uk has recommended that all accommodation providers incorporate affordable stock into their strategies good luck with that but how does it compare to the housing that we should be building do you know how many homes 
Dublin City Council built in 2018? When we think of this, like thousands and thousands of students bed being built. I would say if I was Dublin City Council, I would like a nice figure to maybe be 2,000. Okay, so in 2018, Dublin City Council built 74 homes. Holy moly. But as well as that, the council also buys new builds from private developers. So at least there's hope in these figures. But they bought 63. (gasps) So that's 74 plus 63. And when you look at the fact that they're trying to get 24,000 plus student beds built uh, up to 2024, um, clearly there's something wrong here. I just have a big problem with categorization categorization I suppose why are we so obsessed with it a student has to live here why can we not just provide um, a scale of housing that allows for affordable housing for students for people who can't afford bigger houses for like and give everyone a choice of houses why does it have to be categorized is my issue I mean, that's the, the question. The reason that it's categorised like that is because people are making an awful lot of money for it. So that's the student accommodation context in terms of how the city is changing and what you're noticing with all these buildings flying up. And now to the restaurant and bar boom. Catherine Cleary is with us in studio. Catherine Cleary, queen of Dublin restaurants, feared by every chef in front of house. <laughs> forebearer of trends, assessor of restaurant-driven gentrification. <laughs> Welcome. Was that intimidating That's enough? That's a big, big kind of workup for me, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a weird position to be in. I consider myself a journalist um, who writes, is lucky enough to write about restaurants, but I think that gives... Uh, restaurants are particularly interesting things to write about. Uh, have always been since I've been doing the gig for seven more than seven years now. Because I got it at the height of the or the bottom of the crash, the height of the crash, whatever you want to call it, and expected, okay, that's it for eating out. We're all going to be, you know, boiling rice at home. But actually, the reverse happened. Lots of restaurants came out of nowhere. Uh, people could get their hands on premises for very little money. The whole wheeze that is key money um, effectively just handing over a huge wadge of cash for the keys to your building without any you know equipment or access or rent or anything that just disappeared overnight because landlords were desperate to get uh, businesses into their premises so that early kind of 2008 2009 time um, was actually really good for restaurants and really good for Irish food Mm. um, because they weren't in the grip of property madness um, but that's no longer the case and this is why I think like the restaurants are such a good metric for what's happening in a city right and this is why um, you know we think it's kind of central to the conversation around gentrification of Dublin and Mm. loss of character or maybe not maybe the like brilliant progress and loads more choice Um, Andrea what do you reckon Um, I would wonder do you think that now that we have like we're coming back into a more um, money rich time mm-hmm. that we're, we're going to start losing out on the character and the personality led restaurants to more uh, shiny happy restaurants that are t- tar- and is that necessarily a bad thing and myself and Nina have this conversation a lot that just because it's not what we l- like and but the majority of people they're getting like loads of people on the seats is that a bad thing and how do we kind of decide that yeah I think you can be very snooty about oh you know unless it's only got 16 covers and he's foraging every ingredient it's not for me um, which is actually I think which is okay to which is say fine. Yeah, you know, it's t- fine grand. you can choose where you spend your money so yeah I think you know, big is not necessarily bad 
um, and small is not necessarily wonderful. Um, but there is there is something that happens, a tipping point in numbers with restaurants when you go over a certain number or you try to take something that's worked really well and franchise it out. Um, you do lose uh, a lot of what made it really wonderful in the first place because you can't really scale up the kind of from scratch cooking that a team, of, as you know, a small team of people, or one even one person or two people are doing. Uh, you can, of course, scale that up, but you need enormous amounts of uh, kitchen talent, which we're very short of at the moment because. We, you know, the, nobody has anywhere to live. Well, it's very hard to find anywhere to live. The, mm. You know, the, it's a hard, it's a hard uh, business to be in. Um, people like to talk about it, but actually, when they're faced with a kitchen shift, they realise this is hellish, and you know, I don't particularly want to do it. So, you know, at all kinds of levels, the majority of cooking in in the city is very hard work and not very well paid. Um, so, you know, to get the beautiful restaurant scene that you might look at, I mean, we always look to Copenhagen as being this example of a city that's very similar in size to Dublin, similar kind of uh, country in terms of the climate, uh, and went from being nowhere on the restaurant scene to having this extraordinary restaurant scene. Um, but the difference, I think, is that they had uh, a much flatter, you know, there, there isn't the same huge inequality of incomes that they, but that we have here in Ireland that's now just putting such a squeeze on on the quality of people's lives. So, you know, it's easier to... Uh, move from one area of you know income or whatever. There, there isn't the same income inequality in Denmark for a start, so it's much easier for young people to come in and be paid very well for their work. Uh, so, yeah, the it's gentrification is. I mean, you look at. I'm, I'm just thinking of Variety Jones on Thomas Street, which is you know Thomas Street has for a long time. It's it's kind of a mystery. Why isn't Thomas Street got more things on it? It's it's in the middle of the tourist trail that takes you from, uh, you know, from Trinity to the Guinness Storehouse. Uh, so Variety Jones was in a case in point, a small place that opened. Um, for some people, that's gentrification. You know, what what is that? It's a posh restaurant. It's expensive. Uh, the the chef there is cooking over fire. Beautiful food. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, you know, what kind of gentrification do you want or do you want a shiny press up group coming in with their cocktail menus and, you know, the generic kind of fast food, posh fast food that they do? Um, that will also they have also done some service to some buildings that were kind of forgotten about or lost. You know, they've they've refurbished them. So it's yeah, there's layers and layers and layers of things well, I, that happen so around food, think, food and restaurants. Uh, uh, gentrification. Who's going first? <laughs> how would you characterise the trends in the last five years of restaurants in Dublin, and how do they intersect with or run parallel to the gentrification that we're seeing in the city? I think the trend is more, more and bigger. Um, you know, I had a look at the licences um, because I was asked to write a piece. But you know, after Luna closed, is there is this the bubble? bursting and everybody panics about the restaurant bubble the restaurant bubble is not it doesn't sit in isolation it's the bu- it's the bubble it's the economy basically you know if the economy crashes restaurants crash it's it's tied together hand in hand so the last 5 years the typical restaurant license which is a wine um unlicensed in order that you sell wine at the peak of the boom we had 2400 across the country that went fell after that for the next 5 years in almost like a v shape the worst year there was 400 losses so nearly eight places a week were handing back their licenses wow. saying we're done now they weren't all restaurants some of them might have been galleries who were serving wine but mostly they were restaurants and then uh, sometime around the bottom of the curve it began to pick up again and it's perfect v shape and we're right back 
it's slightly higher than where we were at the height of the boom now with two thousand another 2,400 licences. This is a countrywide rather than just in Dublin. And there's been, some people have said that there's too many seats um, in restaurants in the city. Do you think that's true? It's hard to see how all those big Barney restaurants can be making enough money on a Tuesday night in, you know, probably not at this time of the year, but, you know, Tuesday night in November or February when there's five people there and maybe more staff than there are customers. And then you can say, well, it's okay. The Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights are, you know, banging and everything's moving and there's loads of people in there. And that that's that is kind of, you know, you have those peaks and troughs in restaurants anyway, and they they flow over the whole thing. But I think the size thing is partly you look at the bigger restaurants that you see coming in. They their economic model is based on wet sales. They're based on booze because booze is higher margin much less cost for a bartender to pour a cocktail than it is for a chef to make a beautiful plate of food. So if you can serve a couple of 14 euro cocktails to your diners um, and then a meal that hasn't cost you that much to put together, that's a, that's a pretty good economic model to keep your big, bar, you know, big uh, operation treading water. But I think a lot of those bigger places are backed by money that is not necessarily coming from chef owners who are just trying to make a restaurant. They're backed by property groups or by equity funds who have uh, decided that, you know, this is the model that they can invest some of the money into. So they're not necessarily the same thing as somebody trying to open a place and cook the best food they can and make, so make a living. Are we it. losing the focus on food and restaurants in Dublin at the moment? Yeah, I think it's it's always going to, when there's a lot of money in the economy, as there is at the moment, and there is a bit of a rush. I was talking to somebody in the construction business about this yesterday, and he was describing this boom as a much more focused boom. There was a kind of a free-for-all the last time around, everybody was piling in a gold rush, you know, everybody could be a prospector. The sense this time around is that certainly among builders is that the money is flowing upwards much more efficiently and they are not sharing the spoils of this boom mm. with the workers who are actually, you know, doing the hard work of it. It's a much more... Um, uh, there's a lot more global money involved. I heard you talking about the student accommodation that's entirely based on a, a global tax break for um, funds, you know, that have uh, these kinds of things happening. They're being dropped into cities all over the world. This is just their Dublin yeah. um, operation. So that's uh, that whole globalisation of a boom or prosper, you know, de- property development, however you want to describe it. You know, at the bo- at the ground floor. I mean, restaurants are the ground floors of a lot of these places. Um, it is, it, yeah, it is changing. It's it's scaling it up. Everything is getting scaled up, and that squeezes out the smaller operators to some degree in some parts of the city. Let's talk about the impact of press up in the city because for a lot of people, they see them as like gentrifiers and real shiny stuff and Instagram restaurants and bars or hotels or whatever. Other people really, really like their settings and their products. We mm. actually asked, um, contact press up and ask representatives to come on, but they weren't available. Hopefully we can talk to them another time. Um, how have, have their um, model basically impacted city the city? It depends on who you ask. If you ask other restaurateurs who are trying to get their hands on maybe a second premises, if they're trying to expand their business, they see press up as the the problem, a part or a part of the problem in the city. In that, if a premises and you know a nice juicy premises, it might need work. It might need a change of use if it's coming on the market. Um, the press up group will be first at the door, and they will have money that will 
will you know just outbid anybody else who's who's been going to their bank looking for the loan to try and get their hands on it so other people are very happy with some of the you know the the more, I suppose, creative uses of buildings. And at least the Pressup Group is an Irish group. You know, it's not Nando's. It's not this international chain coming in. My review this Saturday in the Irish Times is of Leon, which is an international chain, which has just opened in, in Temple Bar. And I find those operations extremely depressing. Um, there's a whole corporate, uh, particularly in Leon, they've tried to do a kind of look at us we're kind of Irish here and there's these oh, no. kind of clunky graphic the badass cafe tartan, uh, tablecloth yeah, incident I mean it's it's just this kind of tin eared corporate some you know Shoreditch designer has come up with this these kind of you know provinces in Irish um and then jokes about how if the milk is good enough for wee Daniel because it's from Donegal and you just say oh my god this is horrible and this is in this is in the former eager beaver in Temple Bar, which I think is just, you know, it's such an example of how the character of Dublin can be washed over by international chains coming in. And I mean, Leon isn't the worst chain. They have very healthy options, very healthy food. But again, you know, they started 15 years ago with two guys wanting to do the right thing. That, you know, fund money has piled into that model now and is now scaling it across the world. And we can also see how that can fall on its face with Jamie's Italians going to Absolutely. the wall. Absolutely, it's dicey because that mid-range market, you know, where it's a chain and, you know, there's some heart at the start of it, which has kind of just evaporated away as it gets bigger and staler and bl- more bloated. Um, it's a really dodgy uh, business model now because... So you can kind of, whilst we... C- press up or held up a lot of the time what they're doing is they're they are popular and people like them so we like you can be a bit snobby about them and that they are doing like loads of things that are very similar but they're doing things that the people who live in the city like yeah essentially and people I mean, who are going into the city to have dinner like because there is a kind of a suburbanization of that kind of stuff happening in the city in my opinion you know so it's like I don't know I mean, yeah. like I me, suppose if you're if you're looking at something that's popular, can you take away its popularity just because you, it's not for you? Do you no, know that way? And not. then it's just a matter of opinion. Yeah, yeah, but then when you look at then if they're taking all this popularity and making it harder for the more zany, I suppose, kind of like experimental and niche products, and that because how can they survive when we're putting the marker of success on just making loads of money, whereas we're not putting on this amazing restaurant that's me- yeah. taught bringing people in, ha- creating conversations, and creating an experience. So I suppose, it got, how do we balance that? Yeah, I mean, my issue with Press Up is that a lot of the press releases that come from them talk about how amazing their food is. And I have yet to be amazed by any of their food. It's fine. You know, it's uh, it's nothing special. And they don't. that's not where their business model is built. So, you know, that's my feeling is if people think this is an amazing meal, they should be going elsewhere. If they want to go out for a good night with their friends and mm-hmm. have cocktails, perfect these are perfect venues to go to and or sit on a swing <laughs> <laughs> oh, la, 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 la. I looked at that swing and I have to remember who I was with at the time and I think I said that's a personal injury case waiting to happen um, you know but I, then you could say a step is a personal injury like, exactly exactly on. I mean yeah it, uh, it was a nice design, <laughs> design feature which is now actually causing an awful lot of business to the dean apparently. yeah totally yeah, it's, it's um, what's going to 
come down the line now because obviously um, this isn't a static situation um, and the fabric of Dublin in terms of restaurants and bars just keeps blooming, blooming. And there's a few massive um, developments coming on stream over the next while. You've got the Central Bank Plaza down in Dame Street, which mm-hmm. is just going to be gigantic and presumably filled with kind of more brands that we are going to be lucky enough to try us Irish folks that was yeah. an actual quote <laughs> yeah cheek and then there's the Cleary stuff coming as well there's the food court that's going to be down in the church that was on Suffolk Street like it seems to me that there are actually like really gigantic um, restaurant development type mixed UC things that are going to be um, you know here this time next year or in and around that time and I would imagine that if I was like an indie restaurant owner, like you're already trying to compete with the Ivy. You're already trying mm. to compete with press ups. Like, how are you going to compete against mm. whatever else is in Central Bank or, you know, or, mm. um, Michael Wright running the food hall in Suffolk Street and all that? Yeah, I mean, it's never been easy to make money from restaurants and it is increasingly. But the, as we were talking about the Jamie thing, you know, those massive operations, they look too big to fail, but actually they're not nimble and they can't respond to the trends and the trends are coming fast and furiously. And, you know, you do have smaller operators who can almost do, as somebody described it, it almost feels like a pop-up kind of restaurant scene at that other level here where you have creative Irish chefs um, doing things that people get excited about, genuinely excited about and, and they go and say, I, I mean, I... And by the, the time they're bored by it, then they're able exactly. to change it into something fun. And I mean, I every couple of months I'm sitting down at 10 o'clock on a certain date I put the date in my diary and I'm trying to book a table in Leah which is the old former Heron and Grey and two minutes after 10 every single table is gone mm. um, so yeah, that's, that's a tasting Do you menu good and yeah. people will come that's absolutely two people and I, okay that's a very small space um, you know he's got a Michelin star which is you know that's the, the thing that will make your business fly but yeah, you can get dazzled by it kind of, oh my God. And when you go through that list of behemoths that are coming on the food scene, I, my, my my instinct is, why don't we still have a bloody food market? Like, why can't we have an English market scenario? You know, we mm. have the Ivy markets mm. mouldering on Francis Street, uh, shamefully, uh, having been sold by the city council. Yeah. Uh, and they're now trying to get it back through the high court. Uh, so... You know, yes, there's massive uh, food operations coming in, but they're not the kind of food operations that make a tourist think, wow, I just had an incredibly Dublin experience and I love the city and I'm coming back. And with regards to the food hall thing, as opposed to the food market, um, I can't remember who was writing the piece in The Guardian about Jamie's Italians, but he was talking about how food halls are actually the next trend in the UK to be completely saturated. Mm. Um, Because essentially they're kind of just full of different versions of chains. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. like my take on all the the mid-range thing is that that is a category that is suffering in everything. Like retail, the high street, the mid-range is what's being pulled out. Yeah. Like you're either kind of luxury or experiential and very like close to the ground and grassroots yeah. and the mid-range of city life, retail, any kind of consumption is yeah. what's going to be pummeled, yeah. I think. But before you go, we're going to do a little quick round. Uh, uh, can quick we ask one more question? Yeah, go on. Do you think that if we did an overhaul of our licensing laws, that that would be somehow go to being changing our restaurants and make it easier to make money, like 
serve a margarita with your five dollar tacos or whatever. Yeah, I think that. I mean, the the wine law that, or the wine license I was talking about dates back to 1860. I mean, it's just gas to read it. You know, it's for the serving of foreign wines in in uh, you know um, in premises. And uh, yeah, if you were to give wine licenses to cafes, that they could you know have wine there. I mean, some rest restaurants would just throw their hands up in the air, go, Jesus, don't do that. We have enough competition as it is. But I think. Uh, also, the other issue with Luna is the special restaurant license, which, which allows you to do the cocktail thing. It only allows you to do it if you're paying for those cocktails with your dinner and you're finishing them 30 minutes after the ending of a meal. This is to protect the pubs, basically. Um, but all the pubs are now doing food as well. Yeah. And also they've got these very late licenses and they've brought the DJs in and, you know, where are our nightclubs? So the pubs are being the clubs and the restaurants. The so it's the time restaurants. to give the restaurants and clubs back to the city. Well, yeah, and it's kind of maybe to stand up to the vintners and say, yes, you know, we, you've had tar- hard times and we need to maybe rebalance it a bit towards uh, towards restaurants and, and clubs a little bit just to keep everything, um, you know, to keep that Working. variety of, of choice that people really want. Quick fire round. Um, what is coming up that you're excited about in Dublin? There's a chef from Derry called Niall Davidson who has a restaurant in Shoreditch called Nula and he's opening in Dublin in, uh, he was supposed to be opening in spring, but um, any day now, maybe, <laughs> or any month now, in South Frederick Street um, with a restaurant, which I'm not going, I'm not sure if he's going to call it Nula. It's, the interesting thing is going into the ground floor of a hotel, which is not normally the place where you go to find good food, but he cooks over fire and is very much a you know cook from the island of Ireland kind of chef so he's going to be really interesting cool where is your favourite place to eat in Dublin right now I had the most lovely meal the other evening in the fish shop on Queen Street Um, it's one of my faves you don't have to make any decisions. I think that's why it's so <laughs> soothing. It's written in a sharpie on the tiles on the wall. That's what you get. It's a set menu. Um, it's mainly fish based, obviously. Um, beautifully cooked. Uh, and I was eating with uh, uh, for a story actually with somebody who contacted the paper and he'd never been there before um, and he was blown away by it. And um, it's brought fantastic new life to that part of the city which was kind of just you know shut up after after dark um, and it's a really beautiful restaurant What do you think is adding to the city? Energy and people's effort and the you know it's a positive I was talking to um always love talking to Vanessa Murphy from Tapas de Lola because she's got a kind of an international view of it as well and she was talking about Anna's relatives her partner's relatives when they come from Spain they are kind of blown away by Dublin and say how you know how wonderful it is what a great buzz there is on a Tuesday night you can be out and people are you know because large parts of Spanish cities are you know and Spanish towns are very very quiet um, so I think there is still energy there and I think if you can keep the idea in your head for what it is you want to do be it in food or in some kind of you know hospitality business work hard at it not get too caught up in trying to be the next franchise or chain or or famous person and just do it really well then there's still space to do it in Dublin and there's a still huge amount of goodwill and people so delighted to get uh, a good meal out and so grateful and think about the joy of why you have a restaurant rather than just the scalability of it absolutely yeah yeah. And finally, what food trend in restaurants in Dublin needs to die? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, can I say Top Five Guys? 50. <laughs> five Guys is Actually, delicious. I think Five Guys is thriving. Um, oh, what food trend? Uh, I'm tired of the greenwashing that's going on and people talking about being sustainable when they just aren't. Um, and that's going to be more and more, um, more and more happening. Uh, restaurants are some of the most wasteful businesses 
on the planet and they need to own that and try and figure out how to do it better. Um, what other trends? Yeah, cocktails and jam jars. It's probably time to stop that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think ever anybody ever bought. And it's horrible. Like the rim of a jam jar is a horrible thing to drink out of. You know, just it's nice. I nice can't use straws anymore. No. <laughs> well, we can bring our own metal ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Captain Cleary, thank you so much for that. Super insightful and says so much about the city beyond the restaurant scene. You were so adept at writing about and talking about. So thank you so much. Terrific. Thanks, Una. Enjoyed it. It's time to get wet. It's time to get in the sea. This week, uh, we are putting the closure of the beer garden of the Bernard Shaw in the sea. We have been talking about this. The Bernard Shaw is one of the cultural institutions for our young 18 to 24 slash 30 year olds. Slash our age. Slash, <laughs> slash elder. Um, and has been instrumental in providing a platform for musicians, DJs, club nights, the flea market um, the Bernardshaw flea was one of the like first flea markets that started to create a place of culture I remember when I had a street style blog called Dublin Streets I'd go in and that was the first place we used to say that the Shaw provided this platform of people who didn't just wear fake tan and boob tubes and bodycon dresses for the first time we saw an expression of a personality and now that's been taken away because of apparent noise complaints now anyone who knows the area well will know that behind the Bernard Shaw and the um, beer garden the only thing there is lanes for graffiti and street artists to um, spend their time honing their craft and creating stuff that will then go on to be lauded by councils and governments <laughs> around the world but for the meantime that area is not filled with residents it's filled with nothing essentially apart from art which is very important um, but so for to hear that the complaints are coming about noise complaints from residents when all the places were knocked down the flats were knocked down in the area what is going on it seems to me if you look at the articles that have been um, come out there's a line in it that says that the Bernard Shaw is not is in the way of the potential development of that area and then if you look at the block um, further down from the Bernard Shaw there's planning notices all over it. all those um shops and abracababras mm, garlic cheese fries um, are closing down uh, have closed down and they have planning in it so there's obviously plans for that block to happen and they want the Bernard Shaw toast now obviously we are have been talking about gentrification and there is good and bad sides to it but if you're taking one of the cultural hubs out of the city and you're not replacing it and there's nowhere for all these people to go what are people going to do and this is just it's just ridiculous and we need to start looking having people in local councils who care about the cultural aspects so for now we're going to say that the trying to close down the Bernard Shaw can get in the sea and there's also a petition online which you can sign to save the Bernard Shaw uh, outdoor area just Google Bernard Shaw petition and you'll get that. But the council point is really interesting. As we were talking about earlier, the makeup of the council is changing. The Greens are on there. The Greens weren't just talking about like the climate crisis and stuff when they were running. They were talking about, um, you know, building sustainable cities, having, you know, cultural and creative cities. So now it's time to actually get onto this new council and uh, tell them to sort out this stuff because it is just not on and we want our nice things 
preserved and um, we want nice things preserved we want nice things to come as well we want investment in areas but we also want culture and we also we want everything and that's not too much to ask for no everything is really reasonable (laughs) now for our fave bits my fave bits this week are Club Comfort which I was at on last Friday night at the Rowan Club on the Liffey and had a really nice time. So go everyone involved in clo- Club Comfort. My I'm other- loving all the pop-up clubs like Grace and Club Comfort mm. and stuff. It, you, you, even though we're being really heavily restricted, people are really trying to make it work. Yeah, and big up everyone trying to do parties in the city because it's hard. So well done. That was really good fun. My other fave bit is a book called The Irish Abortion Journey 1920 to 2018, which sounds really serious. And it is an academic book, but I just thought I didn't want to read any more about Irish abortion stuff. <laughs> but this book is amazing for its context on like 1920s, 30s mental shit that was happening in Ireland with regards to um, how uh, essentially like unmarried mothers were being treated. It is a real eye opener. It's stuff that you kind of You're knew. a sucker for punishment you know? I know. Like, I'm literally <laughs> like let it go. It's really good. It's written by Lindsay Ernerburn and Dania, Dan, Diana Urquhart. Gorge. My favourite bits this week are um, I was at the NCID graduate fashion show and nothing makes me more excited than going to see what the fashion designers of the future are turning out and the stuff that they were making was absolutely sublime and the chances that you can take because I suppose um, talking to fashion designers when they leave college then they have to start being commercially viable and that's a whole other episode let's do that as an episode okay cool Um, but I think to see the people like there was an an outfit that was inflatable and she is just absolutely brilliant Um, but there's loads of stuff there second uh, was Variety Jones I went for the first time and it's really convenient that it ties into what our whole subject is it was one of the best experiences in a restaurant I've had in Dublin in ages it was absolutely sublime food sublime hosting sublime everything I just absolutely sublimed it (laughs) (laughs) and the last thing is all the absolute woman power that was coming from the Spice Girls I didn't go to the Spice Girls but to say I felt this wave of feminine energy washing over Dublin oh it was just so glorious everyone was so supportive of each other there was no bitchiness everyone was just having an absolute vibe and it was just so good so go on the girl power congratulations Una guess what what we hit our target for our first week of patrons on Patreon Thank you so much, everyone. It means so... Like, I listen to podcasts and when you hear all this, you're like, oh my God, shut up with your thanks. But it actually, now that it's (laughs) us, you do actually really mean it. You're like, thank you for providing this platform for us to be able to do this because we would never have done this if we weren't able to pay everyone what they deserve to be paid for helping to create this. So it really does mean a lot. We are so, so grateful. Thank you to every single person who has funded the podcast so far. Um, you're all legends and anybody listening who wants to do the same for as little as three euro go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland we need more people on board to make it sustainable so we can pay our production folk so that would be so brilliant patreon.com forward slash United Ireland help, help us make this a daily podcast and we got our target for the first week we have loads more targets to make just saying this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and Castaway Media welcome back to our to the podcast <laughs> sorry <laughs> 
I'm just reading what Andrea read here. Well, Say it. <laughs> welcome back to the podcast, bosom, to Susie Venice. Thanks to Crystal Clear for our music, Jemble, Sarah Fox for the design, and you for listening. You can find all our links for our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. And hopefully this week you might even be able to hear us on iTunes. Okay, so we had a total, <laughs> total nightmare with iTunes last week, but we're sorting it out. We've, sure, we've Jan. been talking to Tim Cook himself. <laughs> we're rocking our black turtlenecks. It's going to happen. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be on all podcast providing platforms. But we are on Stitcher if we're not on any of those yet. But we'll hope we are on SoundCloud. But yeah. I hope you enjoy listening and now to close off it's that time again it's disco time it just makes me feel like it's the weekend and I we are recording a bit early but it, it's Thursday now in my mind uh, this week all the Ibiza party places opened the season has kicked off so we are going to go out with Ron Hall The Way You Love Me which is the ultimate Ibiza glitter box which is the best club in the world uh, party tune so enjoy and get your glitter on your box We've been, <laughs> <laughs> we've been out of a lolly in Andrea Ireland. Andrea, for fuck's sake. Sorry, it was the box. Glitter box that put turned. We've been in a Malali and Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland, and that was Dublin.
love and 